So, Luke, uh, before we look at the text, tell me what you know about him. Let's see if we can piece together some background about Luke. Brenda? Brenda's correct. He is a physician, and we'll point to a passage of Scripture that gives rise to that thinking. He's thought to be a physician, indeed. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so here's what we hear. He is the only Gentile writer of what? Of anything in the Bible. (laughs) So, uh, please underline the word only. Uh, I, I, it's, 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 do you feel like a token person? I mean, uh, I know you're, I, I know you're feeling. If Luke is a Gentile, if, then that would make him the only Gentile writer of any of the books of the Bible. Now, why do I say if? I want to show you the basis upon which a good number of people uh, come to that conclusion. It's not an unfounded conclusion. Um, Judge for yourself. Will you turn with me to Colossians chapter 4? We're still on background to the book. We haven't looked at the text just yet. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Give you a chance to find it. It's not so easy. Lots of luck. Colossians 4, when you get there, you'll see Paul is speaking sort of towards the end of the book, and he's saying, making some concluding statements. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, here's what it says. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus... You can see here, not Jesus as in Jesus the Christ. Jesus was a very common name in that day. Jesus, who is called Eustace, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, which is another way of saying what? They are Jews from the circumcision. In the Bible, Jews are referred to sometimes as the circumcision, non-Jews as the uncircumcision. So Paul is expressing his appreciation for co-workers. In this case, he names those who he identifies as being of the circumcision, Jews. Okay, keeping that in mind, we read on, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect, fully assured in the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And now this is an important closing statement, verse 14. Luke, that's the person under our consideration today. Luke, the beloved physician, so we know of his vocation, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. So some say Paul clearly made a distinction between fellow workers of the circumcision, who he named above, and others who by implication are not of the circumcision, namely non-Jews. That's the basis upon which some come to the conclusion that Luke was probably a Gentile. I do not think it's unfounded by no means. Further support for the fact that Luke was a Gentile, not just here, but the nature of Luke's gospel. As you will see, it has a much more universal appeal than the other gospel writers. Uh, The audience seems to be primarily Gentile. Every people group, gender and age, in fact, Luke distinguishes himself as showing due respect and giving due attention to women as well as men, Gentiles as well as Jews, old as well as young, etc. And so when you read the language of Luke, you see 
that at times he says things which seems to imply his audience is primarily Gentile because he explains things about Jewish culture and tradition that would not need to be explained if the recipients of what he wrote were Jews. They would say, what are you telling me this? I know all about it. So he acts as if the people to whom he's writing need a little help because they don't understand Jewish culture and tradition. So there's a strong likelihood he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience and a likelihood that he's a Gentile. You see very little about prophecy in Luke's gospel, Old Testament prophecy, and then the fulfillment in Jesus. For instance, in Matthew's gospel, and his target group are Jews, you see tons of illustrations of how he invokes Old Testament scripture and then says all this has been fulfilled through the person known as Yeshua or Jesus. But you don't see that in Luke's gospel. If his audience is primarily a Gentile audience, there would be no need to connect Old and New Testament because they didn't have the benefit of the Old Testament. So proving who Jesus is through Old Testament prophecy and its fulfillment would be rather irrelevant uh, to the Gentile reader. So for all those reasons, and they're good ones, a number of people conclude that Luke was a Gentile and that his audience was primarily Gentile. Um, to throw my two cents in, because that's because I got the microphone here, I don't think we can be certain about it. I just don't think we could. It's, it's possible that he was a Gentile writer, but the arguments uh, are not conclusive to me, including the text we just looked at. There just are other explanations uh, uh, for it. Mac? That's a great question. Um, and, but the problem with it is, as you know, in those days, m most people had two names, just everybody. So um, because they were Roman citizens, even if they were Jews, they had Hellenistic names like Paul, who was also Saul. So it's a great question, but I don't think we can resolve the issue that way. Because it could have been Luke, his Gentile <laughs> name uh, as a Roman citizen and, and an underlying Jewish name. We don't know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> and I don't either, Mac. Uh, I, I, I don't. It's a good uh, line of investigation, I, I, I think, that could help resolve the issue. So anyway, a, a little bit of background um, about Luke. Now, um, there are other gospel writers. What are their, that is to say, biographies of the life of Christ. What are their names? So why do we need another one? <laughs> why do you think? Yeah. Yes. They all presented Jesus from a different viewpoint, facets of his life. You know, if I hold up an object, I'll hold up an object. <laughs> if I hold up this bottle of water before you, um, we're looking to the same object yet from different vantage points. See, I see it from this angle. Those directly in front see it from that angle. You see it sideways. And that's how it is with the magnificent life of Christ. So what you do not have in the gospel writers are contradictory statements. Uh, you have different facets of the life of Christ. And there's some material in Luke that is surely a duplication of what you find in the other gospel writers, this is a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, there's much unique information about Jesus unique to Luke's gospel. So uh, the Lord knows what he's doing in giving us this full-orbed perspective on his life. By the way, his life uh, was so influential uh, that many wrote about him. His life remains influential today. Now, for most of us here, we would conclude, of course, he's the Savior. But even for those who reject the Saviorship of Jesus, it's undeniable that he's had tremendous impact on human history. And so there's been a proliferation of things written about him. And Luke essentially says, and I too 
<laughs> want to write about him. So he does, and there's something unique about um, Luke that you do not see with Matthew, uh, Mark, and John. Many things, but I'm thinking of one thing in particular. What would you like to guess? In depth, Brenda said, perhaps. Yes, sir. Say that again. Uh, one of the first apologetic writers. And you mean by that what? So he makes a defense uh, over, over the, uh, of the fact that Jesus is... A, that's a very good point. Excellent point. Yes. Slanted towards the Gentiles? For sure. Absolutely. Yes. Interesting. He is writing, it looks like, to a, almost a singular recipient, isn't it? Yeah, Doc? Ah, he, sorry, his uh, genealogy um, is different than that in Matthew's gospel. A absolutely correct. There's something else. You all are coming up with far better answers than what I have. So I am just really praying for the rapture here before I tell you. What I, what I came up, Danny. It's quite orderly, is it not? In fact, he'll allude to that. He'll say in consecutive order. He's a historian, physician, kind of a linear thinker, scientific process. Quite an intellect. Yes, ma'am. Visual. Oh, this is a good point. And I think you, you're, you, you, you may be onto something there. Yes. Yes, sir. And what's part two? Oh, I love that guy. I, please take this. This is a more expensive seat. Come. Come. Stay. Leave. Is this your wife? Oh, she does? It's like a pack. Stay where you are. <laughs> no, by the way, you're, you're going to love Luke because he really, really upholds the status of women. That's another thing. Quite, quite interesting over here. But, I, but, but that's what I was going to Everyone is correct, but, but you're more correct. No, because that's what I was just thinking. He's, he wrote a sequel. It's Luke Acts. And you're so right. After he recorded this biographical information, then he essentially says, now what? What's the impact? And that's the book of Acts, which he also authored. So, Brenda, you can learn some stuff around here. This is no fly-by-night operation. Absolutely. He's the author of book. That is good. Part one, part two. Okay, so that's some good stuff. Just a notion on when it may have been written. If the book of Acts um, ended around A.D. 63, how do we get that? Paul getting ready to stand before Nero. So when you look to the time of all that, you get around A.D. AD 63. The presumption is that Luke would have been written sometime before that. So most think sometime in the early 60s, A.D. 60, 61, 62, Something like that. Don't know for sure exactly, but that's what most people think. So anyway, that's the notion of the background. And now what you get is what's called a prologue in the first four verses. The first four verses of chapter one are the prologue. And like in any literature, the purpose of the prologue is to give information to the readers. Here's why I'm writing. Here's who I'm writing to. Here's my purpose. Here are the circumstances. And so you get those matters addressed in the first four verses, which in the Greek, and Luke was a Greek speaker. He's speaking Greek. In the Greek, it's just one uninterrupted sentence. Quite interesting. There, there's no verse division. There are uh, no periods in the text. It's like you take a deep breath. <gasps> And exhale the first four verses, and then you do not inhale until you finish. It's just one, one exhalation of information. So that's what you get. So that's being the, ca being the case 
let's take a look at the first four verses in our time remaining. Here's what it says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, Jesus was an issue. <laughs> his alleged miracles, his authoritative teaching, uh, people were aroused. Um, he was the major topic of conversation and many therefore undertook to write it down. Let me write this down, what he said, what he did. Not necessarily always from a legitimate and accurate perspective, but from some interest in the character of Jesus. Perish the thought that in any day Jesus ceases to be an issue. That's bad. I used to be with an organization called Jews for Jesus. And we used to wear a shirt with a, that very subtle message on it. Jews for <laughs> Jesus. And we would put our little bodies in the midst of crowds in urban areas and just stand there as targets, essentially, <laughs> and try to put a tract in people's hands and engage in conversation. Some would say it's not a very effective evangelistic technique, and you may be right, uh, but the real issue was to make sure Jesus was made an issue. So it was kind of in your face, uh, for sure. So as people were about the business of living life and getting on trains and buses and pushing through crowds, we wanted to interrupt their uh, day with thoughts of who this Jesus is. And even if we got in an argument with somebody, at least Jesus was the issue. <laughs> so the right response to him was out of our hands. Some respond positively, some negatively, but we wanted to give people the opportunity to respond. I'm telling you, in Luke's day, everyone was responding one way or the other. It was striking, this one, his story, what he said, what he did. And as a result, many were writing accounts of what was going on. And Luke says, just as they were, these accounts, they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. You know what that means? It means Luke himself was not an eyewitness of these things. When it says from the beginning, he's not talking about from the book of beginnings, Genesis. He's not talking about from the beginning of time. He's talking about from the beginning of the earthly life of this Jesus. He's saying many undertook to write accounts of all that transpired during his time. Uh, and he said, uh, I, I have received these Accounts They were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses. Now, some would say, whoa, if he was not an eyewitness, how can I put much stock in what he had to write? So Luke's biography of the life of Jesus should probably not be given much credibility. After all, he said, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But let me just argue that a little bit. I think the opposite is true. The other gospel writers were eyewitnesses of the event, death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus. A critic could say they had a stock in writing what they wrote, and not only that, they lost a measure of objectivity in recording what they wrote. You know how it is. Sometimes you can think you saw something when what you saw nobody else sees. So that could invalidate the eyewitness account. So God adds to the mix a non-eyewitness account based on what we would call today investigative journalism, which makes Luke's account even stronger because he consulted the written and oral testimony of those who were eyewitnesses. Now, who might they be? How about someone like Mary, the Lord's mother? It's highly likely that Luke knew her. 
spoke to her. She would have some information, don't you think? It's probably likely he also buddied up with and interviewed the Lord's brothers, uh, Jude, James. These were big guns in the early church, were they not? They wrote New Testament literature. James was uh, uh, one of the key elders in the Jerusalem congregation. Now that is one cute little booger right there. How old is your baby? Cute. Stephen, cute. Wow, wow, wow. First? Fourth. That's horrible. My goodness. Wow. Yeah, you told me that the other night. I forgot. I forgot how many you had. I see you have your wife well trained. She got up and took the baby. So you can rest. It'll be over when we go through Luke because he has something to say about women. You'll be the one getting up with that baby. I'm telling you that. No, no, no. Cute little baby. Stayed quiet for a long time. Wow, wow, wow. Wonderful. I have no idea where I was. <laughs> yeah, so eyewitnesses. So, so James, Jude, uh, listen to this. Um, it's highly likely when Luke lived, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of those who were eyewitnesses of these key events in the life of the Lord who he could interview. So we are talking about some very exacting historical compilation of information uh, from the point of view of hundreds, if not thousands, of eyewitnesses, thus to pretty much rule out Luke's narrow, less-than-objective perspective. This was real good investigative uh, journalism. And so he says, since all this was going on, all these people had ideas, compilations, and accounts. He said, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write. You know that inclination he had also to write. Where did that come from? Here you get a bit of a glimpse into what we call the doctrine of inspiration a hint at how we got the scriptures. Um, Luke is just doing his thing as a physician. Something stirred him up to write, to compile with exactitude an account of the life of Christ. Uh, there was a human inclination for sure, but there was also probably divine stimulation. And there's the partnership between the divine and the human, which is behind the authorship of the books of the Bible. Men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote. Undoubtedly, Luke was moved by the Holy Spirit. And you say, but wait a second, he's just doing research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But think about what would be required. He'd have to make lots of decisions whose account is verified, whose account is accurate whose account uh, conforms to, to the level of, of, of truth, of, of, of Scripture, whose account uh, reflects the glory of God. Who could make those decisions except that one is influenced, guided by the Holy Spirit of God? But when you have inspiration, you must not think God took someone like Luke and said, Luke, look into my eyes. You are asleep. <laughs> so some people think inspiration means the Spirit of God so overwhelmed the person that the person was rendered into an altered state of consciousness. It's called mechanical dictation, where essentially someone just was an automaton. Yes, Lord, what's the next word? <laughs> no, it's just the magnificence of God to work through ones such as you and I. Now, we're not writers of the Bible, but we are communicators of truth, aren't we? It's quite marvelous. And the way inspiration works is God does not nullify the personality of the writer. Hence, you have this marvelous array of writing styles in the Bible, different literary forms. Some are quite poetic. Some are anecdotal. Some write 
with lots of agricultural metaphor. Some write systematic legal treatises like Paul in the Book of Romans. Some write with exactitude, with attention to detail, uh, with orderliness, with verifiability, like Luke, the historian physician. So that's kind of what's going on over here. So he said, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in, does your Bible say consecutive order? Say something like that. So here's the deal. You should not conclude in this case consecutive order means chronological order. Here's what I mean. Not everything written in Luke is in chronological order, which has given rise to criticism of his gospel account. Some say it's out of time sequence. Yeah, but he never claimed that. When he says consecutive order, he means themes. Themes. He's not writing in precise chronological order. He's writing about topics and themes in consecutive order. Why is that important? That's how Greeks wrote. That's not how Jews wrote. <laughs> um, it's uh, a, uh, a distinctive of Hellenistic or Greek writers to write topically and thematically, which also bolsters the position that either Luke was a Gentile or he at least is writing to Gentile people. So this distinguishes him from some other writers in the Bible. So he says, I, I was moved to write this out for you. We still don't know who the you is just yet. In consecutive order, now here's the you. Most excellent Theophilus. So I will tell you his name is mentioned again in part two, Acts, the sequel to Luke's, to Luke. Theophilus is mentioned in Luke and in Acts, which means he's important. So tell me what you know about him if he's so important. Let's feel in the life of Theophilus. Please begin. All right, there we go. You pretty much said it. Yes, sir. Well said. Most excellent seems to indicate, um, uh, the thinking is that he might have been a, uh, a legal person of notoriety who even had a role in the defense of the Apostle Paul. So uh, a Roman dignitary of influence uh, because of the phrase most excellent. So many think he was uh, an official in the Roman Empire, perhaps uh, sent on a foreign mission from Rome to, to the land of Canaan or the, or the Holy Land, serving there in some position of, of influence and uh, probably likely a non-Jew because remember, he, if he's serving Rome, he, he, he would probably not be a Jew. And remember, Rome uh, had sway in the Middle East at this time uh, is Israel was uh, under the rulership uh, of Rome, uh, the headquarters of which, by the way, is in a place called uh, Caesarea. You can still go there today and you see the Roman ruins. But anyway, that's a very good point of view. So some, some say he was a Roman political of official, Theophilus. Some say, uh, therefore, his name is not really Theophilus. It's a pseudonym, some say. A pseudonym is a name that's not actually the name of a person. It's a name to protect the name of a person so that you can't really identify that person. Some say Luke used a pseudonym because he was in such a prominent political role, it could have been hazardous to his health for him to be publicly identified as a follower of King Jesus as opposed to a follower of emperor, of the Roman emperor. Some say that. Theophilus. Does your Bible on the side tell you what it means? 
You got any hints? Friend of God. Absolutely. Friend or sometimes lover of God. Here's how you get it. Um, Theo from the word theos. Theos means God. That's the word from which we get the word theology. Theology, study of God. That's the first part of his name. Theo and then phil. That's like from phileo, love. Lover of God, like in Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, not. Have you ever been? But anyway, it's a name. <laughs> anyway, so, so some people say high government official, indeed a lover of God, a person of influence, interested in knowing more about Jesus. Now, let me tell you something else just so that you know. Some people say we're not speaking about a person here. Paul, uh, excuse me, Luke is using the term with reference to a group. That is to say, many people who were friends of or lovers of God. So I just want you to know what, what the different perspectives are. I don't think we can know for sure. You can choose a preferred point of view. These are the things where I hope we enjoy each other's different perspectives and are not troubled by them. <laughs> Uh, that, that there are certain things. So listen, one day a guy told me, you know, you Christians, you, <laughs> you don't even, you, you can't agree on it. Look at all the denominations, churches. You don't talk to me about this, Jesus. You Christians can't even get it together. That sounds like a good argument, but it's not. So I memorized this verse, so if I ever run into him again, I could slam him with it. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> That's not a good approach. But anyway, here's what it says. 1 Timothy 3. I hope it's verse 16 or else I'm leading you astray. But if, I think it's 1 Timothy 3.16. Look what it says. By common confession. Ah, common. You would be shocked to see how much we Christians have in common. Forget about denominations and all that stuff. By common confession, that it says, great is the mystery of godliness, the unfolding nature of the things of God. And then the writer listed. He, it's Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. By common confessions, we Christians believe in the incarnation, the crucifixion, the proclamation, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Common confession. So that's a good argument when someone says you can't. Some people speak in tongues. Some people don't. Some people baptize infants. Some people don't. Some people organize their church with elders. Some people, and they say you Christians can't get it. That's not true. We really have it together in terms of the fundamentals of the faith. That's all that matters. When it comes to the rest, eschatology, stuff like that, I'm afraid we're just going to have to tolerate different perspectives and points of view well within the camp of uh, sheer and utter legitimate Christianity. That's just the way it is. So frankly, there's much more commonality amongst Christians than there are amongst Muslims. Did you know that? I don't know if you knew that, but Islam is not a monolithic religion. You know, the Shiites and the Sunnis don't get along very... I mean, there's all kinds of divisions and takeoffs and stuff like that. But by common confession, we Christians hold to these fundamental truths. So anyway, I don't have all the answers. None of us do to who exactly Theophilus is. Don't worry about it. But Luke states his purpose in writing to him so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This is a man with undoubtedly a heart for God. He had a hunger to know more. Therefore, he was a sponge receiving teaching about Jesus. That's good and bad. It's good to be a sponge. You want to have a hunger to know more about him. What's bad if you do so without discernment? Because then there's all, for instance, every Easter and Christmas, if you tune in either A&E or the National Ge- Geographic Channel, you're going to get information about the life of Christ. And you're going to find out that he 
possibly had many wives, had uh, relations with Mary Magdalene, uh, produced numbers of children, uh, you know, went on a missionary journey to India. I mean, keep going. And those speculative points of view, uh, interestingly, are advanced by theologians with advanced degrees from prestigious universities. And not once since I've been tuning in, not once have I seen a conservative evangelical scholar interviewed. It's as if we're a bunch of country bumpkins, non-intellectual uh, foolish non-academics who ought to be dismissed out of hand. Do you know our conservative evangelical community has produced great academicians and scholars? Why are we not interviewed when it comes? You get people from Harvard University, the bastion of biblical discernment, I'm sure you agree, so on and so forth. And so... Uh, it's one thing to be hungry for spiritual things, but it's another thing to be unbounded in where you go to satisfy your hunger. So Luke wants to make sure, Theophilus, you've got it going on. You're a friend of God. But many people have undertaken to compile accounts about this Jesus. My purpose is to put one together with exactitude and in consecutive order so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now that holds true today, doesn't it? Where are you going for your information about Jesus? About spiritual realities. Be careful. Uh, listen to this passage of Scripture. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says... Uh, Uh, and there will come a time, now I think it's come, uh, there will come a time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ear from the truth and will turn aside to myths. We're in the day. So numbers of Christians who do love God are enamored now by all these books on near-death experiences so they can find out about heaven. The writer, whoever it is, says, I died, I went to heaven. I saw it. Jesus sent me back to tell you about it. Here's my book. Could that be true? Sure. Anything could be. But you don't know if it is. It's subjective. It's non-verifiable. It's not evidentiary. It's one person's story. Luke says, I want to do the opposite. <laughs> I searched. I compiled with exactitude, with historical verifiability, with order, uh, with objectivity. I interviewed. I went. I did. I... <laughs> I put it together so that you can know with exact truth about Jesus. You don't have to rely on speculative, mythological. I mean, the latest one is this three-year-old kid who apparently died on the operating table. And later on, I guess, after going to heaven and coming back, told his parents about it and writing a book. And <sighs> Let me move into my obnoxious uh, frame of mind. Are you so bored with the Bible that you got to read stuff about the Bible? I'm 61 years old. Yes, I know I don't look it. And, uh, you know, these four verses captivated me the entire week. They've raised more questions than, than I can answer, for sure, some of which we discussed here. But that's captivating to be stimulated by poring over the scriptures. No, we don't understand it all. We learn from each other and so on. It's stimulating. It's captivating. It is the, do you know what the Bible is called? The word of God. 
Listen. In the beginning was God. God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's just how powerful his word is. Uh, nothing else is. Uh, his word has the power to, to, to shed light where there's darkness, to, to transform. It has creative activity. It can make us new. Can you please tell me why there's such fascination with the number one bestseller about a biblical theme? If you want to know about heaven, read the Bible. Will you know all about heaven? Oh, no. You read stuff like the things God has in store are beyond, for you, are beyond anything you can think or imagine. That just told me about heaven. That just tells me, let my mind wander. Let it just take me to the most glorious, wonderful paradise. And God said, it pales in comparison to the reality which is yours. Can that not be satisfying? Why do I have to? Would God take a kid? He dies. He goes to send him. He sends the kid back here? Yeeks. How is that? A and then when you read about these near-death, look, I, I'm sorry here. But I've studied on the near-death experiences because it's a real popular deal now. And what unbelievers report of their experience is exactly the same. I saw a bright light. Come on. Now, I don't want to rain on the parade, but these things can be physiologically produced at a time of medical trauma. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And yes, a good God can anesthetize the individual so they're seeing delightful and wonderful things so as to help them cope with the trauma of the catastrophe. I understand that. But if you study, and I don't recommend it, near-death experiences, I did because people... Here in the church say, have you read this book? Have you read this book? i got to know about these things so I can say, yeah, I read it. Why are you wasting your time? So I'm reading near-death experiences. i I got to tell you. So tell me about heaven. The non-believers tell me the same thing. I saw a great light. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks. You told me nothing. The Bible tells me more. See, that's in the category. Um, and, and, and wanting to have their ears tickled, they turned aside from truth, and they turn to myths. What's a myth? It's non-verifiable. I'm not saying it's true or untrue. That's the point. And Luke is saying, Theophilus, you don't know what's true or what's untrue about what you've been hearing. I determined to do something to assure you that what you're reading is true. Let me encourage you uh, to read the Bible. Isn't that a not a very profound statement, but it's fascinating to see how many regular churchgoers don't read the Bible. Wow. Shocking. Absolutely. Come on. I'll tell you why we are more prone to read about the Bible than the Bible. It's because reading the Bible is hard. I admit that. When I read the Bible, it's a little frustrating because I'm left with more questions than I get answered. I didn't say doubts. I said questions. So it's a little unnerving. So if you read about the Bible, somebody apparently has gone through that process for you. So the hard work of critical thinking is done for you. In other words, we're lazy thinkers. We're just lazy thinkers. We just want it done, received, without engaging in the process. But the Father who authored the Scriptures wants us to wrestle with His Word and look to Him and say, Oh, God, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from Thy Word. He wants us to cling to Him, and He, he wants to make a deposit in our lives as we pour over the Scriptures. And sometimes you can get distracted by extra-biblical stuff. Greg? The light. That's a good point, Greg. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's just generalized uh, kind of stuff. Uh, I, it could be true. I mean, anything could, could be true. You know, I'm, but that's the point. Why do you want to get enthused about something that could be true instead of getting enthused about something that are true? See, Luke's with every ounce of his being and passion is trying to persuade us. What he's writing here, he's telling us about the process and all the rest is true. When you read the Bible, you're on very, very safe 
you're on very, very safe ground. Well, it's a little hard work, isn't it? You have to slow down. You have to ask questions. Please do it. It's very, very rich, rich, rich. I like devotional guides. The people in our church has just produced a wonderful one. It's really, really good. It's not a matter of uh, not reading things like that, but it is really bad if you're reading things like that as a substitute for the Bible. Oh, man. Accept no substitute. That's what Luke is essentially saying. Theophilus, accept no substitutes. By extension, that's what, that's what he's saying to us. So I just want to encourage you. Enjoy the journey of sitting at the feet. Think about it of your father. Uh, I memorized this verse some time ago. Take the pressure off of you when you read the Bible. It's way back in Deuteronomy. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. So that writer, Moses, is essentially saying, don't get nervous about what you don't fully understand. Those are things that belong to God. But what's revealed is given to you and for you to pass on and for you to live by. So when I read the Bible, I, I make note of things I don't have answers to. And maybe God will help me along the way. But mostly you want to camp out on what is understandable, what is vital, what is relevant, what does speak to your very present life situation. You want to give God a chance to make his deposit in your life. And you want to get it directly and that way you'll know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so. See, that's how that's you have to work. So listen, here's what we're going to do, folks, in Luke. Uh, next, we're out of sync, uh, Brother Chuck and I, because of different things. Chuck is preaching in another place today, but he will be here next week to take us further in Luke. Then I get back on the week after or something like that, I forget. He and I are very unstable and unsettled. <laughs> but Luke is not. Read Luke's gospel. So let me encourage you. Read on ahead. Stay with it. You know what I do? Uh, sometimes I, I, I write what I'm reading in as much as many undertook. Oh, it is so slow. And I need some device to slow me down. So do you, folks. We are on an adrenaline good night. We're multitasking freakos. We're so stressed out we can't sit still. We can't even think. So I use the writing thing to slow me down. And just one word at a time. And every once in a while, oh, that word that I'm writing now, I already wrote. Oh, it occurred two times. Why'd you say it twice, God? Maybe it's important. See, that's what happened. Oh, that says and. So the and connects A to, oh, you see what could happen? So you don't get very far in the scripture, but that's not the point. The scripture goes deeper into you. So I leave you with this question. Why can't everyone be like me? <laughs> it's one of those mysteries. God bless you all. Enjoy reading. Listen, Jesus is the word and skinned. The Bible is the word in words, in writing. If I want to get, Jesus, get to know Jesus, who I do not see now, then I read the word. And the characteristics of both the incarnate, enfleshed word and the written word are identical. Isn't that interesting? He's without flaw. The Bible is without flaw. He has power. The Bible has power. So on and so forth. So how could you get to know Jesus with accuracy if you're not reading the Bible? Lord Jesus, would you give us that hunger? I think it has to be produced by your spirit because it doesn't come naturally to us. Would you increase our appetite for it? So... After each morsel, after each bite, we're developing more a taste for it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what's clear in it. Thank you for what is deep and could occupy the very active mind even of someone like Luke. Thank you that there's something in it for everybody. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You're in it. You're for everybody. 
who will. Give us a willingness, Lord Jesus, to sit at your feet, pour over your scriptures, and let you make your deposit in our life so that we can think more like you, be more like you, tell people about you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you sometime.